Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have the first part of a two-part episode on questions on the atonement theories. Well, Scott, uh, we're back at it for another podcast episode, and here in the Chicago area, winter is in full force, isn't it? Well, it's a little milder today because it's it up is. to about uh, it's up to about uh, fifteen degrees. Yeah, there was yeah, a heat it's wave. Balmy. Yeah, you a little bit different from uh, your reprieve from the the weather that you guys yeah, had. It was in Cancun, yeah. right? You were at yeah. Yeah, Chris and I and Laura and Mark, my daughter and her husband, were in Cancun for a few days to warm up and uh, just kind of have a little bit of a family vacation. Yeah, being here in Chicago a a few years, I've learned you've got to do those January, February um, trips to kind of get that reprieve and then stay in it for the bitter, bitter cold. So, yeah. Well, we've got a, a number of great questions to get to today um, on the atonement theory, uh, different atonement theories rather, um, and just, I guess, atonement in general. Um, but for you, our listeners on the podcast, if you weren't able to join us for the webinar that we did on the atonement, I'm going to drop a, a link in the show notes, and it's available on demand at our seminary.edu, our Northern's website. And um, um, you can get on there and um, find that and watch it. Um, Scott covers some really great material there on really setting a foundation for atonement. And these are just additional follow-up questions that um, is fodder for our conversation. So um, before we jump into those questions, Scott, you had a, a metaphor, right? Or analogy rather to, to share and kind of get us started in the right direction, right? Yes. I was thinking about atonement the other day and and how, how everybody gets... Uh, into debates about this and people can get kind of feisty Mm -hmm. and they can say one is the best. And I was, I was thinking about this uh, for no particular personal reason. Um, But I, I got to thinking about toothaches and uh, atonement theory. This is, uh, I guess only theologians sit around thinking about these sorts of things. And making these kinds of connections, my I haven't been to, uh, my my dental work has been good, and I'm in no pain. But here, here's the point: uh, let's just say that that a person has um, a cavity, and their symptom is pain. And um, let's just say that the uh, cavity is deep enough that they're going to need a root canal. Uh, how how would we describe atonement theory if the problem is an infection in a tooth? Okay, so I got to thinking about this, and uh, you know the the aim of of a dental of a tooth infection decay uh, pain is not just the elimination of pain, but the restoration of the tooth. And the elimination, uh, and you restore the tooth by eliminating the disease or the bacteria or the infection. Now, let's just take propitiation theory as an approach to a toothache. Um, I grew up in a day when dentists were more secure in their job, in their community, 
And if I went to my dentist with a, with a decay, I was likely to be reprimanded by my dentist and in some ways to be rebuked. He never yelled at us. He was a, he was a nice man, but it mean, he, he would give me a hard time and he gave, you know, other people that I knew a hard time. I think propitiation in some ways is the image of a dentist, um, expressing anger, wrath against the person who has allowed himself or herself to develop decay in a tooth. So to me, propitiation as a theory of atonement is inadequate because as it works, propitiation is about pacifying the wrath of God, uh, pacifying the dentist, as it were, and that is... um, that is inadequate. We need the decay to be eliminated, the tooth to be cleaned, the tooth to be restored so that health can be resumed. Mm-hmm. So a, a substitutionary theory, I think, would, would talk about the replacement of a tooth. Uh, and so you would need more than propitiation. So uh, if we begin to think about atonement in terms of decay, infection, and health in a tooth, what we want is some kind of dental procedure that will do all these things. Um, it will clarify the problem. Uh-huh. So there'll be diagnosis. There will be um, an ex- explanation of the implications of this infection for health and for the person's tooth and pain, etc., there will be a prescription of how this thing can be, how this infection can be fixed. And there will be procedures done that will both eradicate or eliminate the infection and restore the tooth to health. And that's what I, I think we should think about uh, atonement in terms of infections uh, that that need to be uh, clarified, educated, etc., and in the clarification process, there should be repentance. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that sense, there should be a, an acknowledgement of our accountability and responsibility for the infection that we have brought into our own life. Uh, so, th- this is where, to me, the other day I got to thinking. I think if we use a dental imagery. Uh, and and nobody uh, likes to preach about dental work, uh, but because uh, most people that, don't like to have dental work happen to them. That's them right. They photo. try to avoid the dentist. Uh, well, uh, we need to we need to talk about this then from another angle. But uh, I do think dental imagery uh, can be useful because it highlights the inadequacy or the incompleteness of a propitiatory theory of atonement, it's not enough. It may, it, it's true, but it's not enough. And substitutionary atonement, I think, actually says we're going to take that tooth out and we're going to put a new tooth in. Uh-huh. Uh, or you could say substitutionary theory says we're going to remove the current neurological uh, system that is infected and replace it with something that's, that's better. Yeah. Uh, at this point, the analogy is going to break down. Uh-huh. But the point would be that uh, we need uh, we need to think of sin 
as an infection mm-hmm. that both needs to be diagnosed, uh, that, that needs to be diagnosed, uh, eliminated, and the tooth or the uh, the person, the the organism, whatever, needs to be healed. So yeah. So with that, uh, I start with a little bit of a a chat on that, and people can talk about it amongst themselves and see if it's an adequate image. Yeah. I mean, you know, what I hear you say is that the important thing is that it's a holistic approach, that it's yes. not, you know, a dentist would be taking the wrong approach if he did just make the patient feel guilty because that doesn't lead to healing. And if uh, if the, the dentist on the other side just talked about, didn't tell him what he was going to do or knew about the follow-up care and just replace the tooth, well, then the tooth is, is, is they're still going to be in the same problem. They're still going to have to have more dental work later on because there wasn't a, a change in behavior because of transformation. Right. So, good. Um, yeah, I think you're, that, that's, a, that's a good thing um, to get us started in our conversation today and to begin to think about something like the atonement about. Um, I think that kind of flows into Mitzi's first question. And... Um, this person says, I'm a lay person and often get these concepts confused. What is the relationship between atonement and salvation? Um, for example, just being saved. How does that all fit together? Mitzi's asked a good question, and she asked the question because of the way many Christians and many theologians even use terms in, uh, and so often use terms like atonement, redemption, salvation— in overlapping ways so that um, the word atonement means salvation. Well, okay, I think we should look at it this way. Technically, the word atonement from the Old Testament refers to covering, kapoor, and it, it has to do with how sins were covered in the, in the process of, let's say, redemption. Uh, eventually, though, atonement became a big category that became a theological discussion on how uh, how atonement works it it started talking about mechanics is it through substitution is it through representation uh, what what about the cross what about the resurrection what about the incarnation so all these things get thrown in to atonement so let me put it this way and i think this is the simplest way to distinguish the term atonement from the term salvation Salvation or redemption, these are similar words, are the bigger categories. Uh, And atonement is the means. It is how God saves us. So atonement is an element of salvation, but it is not equivalent to salvation. But she's asked a good question, and I'm glad she asked it because so many times we get careless with how we use these terms. Yeah, to really focus in on atonement being, like you said, the the means and salvation is more of the the result and or the, the bigger idea, the bigger, the bigger idea, idea, the yeah. outflow from atonement. Yeah. Uh, that's good. So to get back, J.D. Reynolds he asks um, a question that kind of goes with your opening analogy with the the dentist and the the holistic approach, and he he said, "You've said we." need all the atonement theories. How do we have discussions about atonement theories with people or groups who only want to operate within one understanding? Well, J.D. is right here, and it is something that I've noticed in the last 20 or 30 years. There are people on the left side who are really nervous about propitiation, 
about the wrath of God because they believe in the love of God. And they are really nervous about substitution for some reason. It's pretty hard for me to get away from substitutionary activity in the pages of the Bible. And they want this to be sort of just um, a divine reclamation project where God uh, enters into the world and redeems us all. And forget about the negative side of it. Let's just talk about the positive. As a result of that sort of um, softening or, or um, over, over, making it overly positive, um, there have been people who react very strongly, and they are insistent on the wrath of God, and they really push hard on those kinds of themes and the anger of God. And before long, we've got a, what I call the uh, atonement wars. Mm-hmm. We've got, it, it becomes political. It mm-hmm. becomes which theological party do you belong to? Which translation do you read? Mm-hmm. Uh, which tribe are you in? And the next thing you know, we're no longer talking about what the Bible actually says. We're just in a fight with one another. Mm-hmm. So here's what I've learned. I think the simplest solution is to be willing to exploit or use or indwell and appeal to all the images that are used for atonement in the pages of the Bible. Uh, and particularly, let's, let's go to New Testament passages like Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, and, and let's look at how each of these terms is used. We have terms like redemption, and we have a sacrifice, atonement, atonement sacrifice. It depends on how the, how the words are used. Uh, some people want to use the word propitiation there. Some people want to use the word expiation. Then we have words like redemption. Uh, we have salvation. So all of a sudden now, we have a bunch of words all mixed together. And it's not like there's one a theory, because when you break down a word like redemption, you realize this is a word that comes from the commercial world of purchasing. You get a word like justification, and you've got a word that comes from a legal world, a forensic world, a, a courtroom scene. You have, you have words like um, uh, mercy seat. Now you are back in the Hebrew or the Jewish uh, temple. And in that temple, all of a sudden, you have blood, uh, and, and all these things start mixing together. I think we need to use all the images. Mm-hmm. And in my book, uh, Community Called Atonement, I talk about each atonement word being a theory and being a golf club in a bag of golf clubs, and good golfers in, um, in, a, in a tournament in a week of playing golf, will use each of their clubs. Most of the time, they'll use each of their clubs, <laughs> and they will they will need a different club for a different setting. I think when we deal with guilt, we want the word justification. When we deal with the idea that we feel trapped, we feel captured, we want the word uh, ransom. We want we want words that deal with uh, release and redemption. Uh, When we are dealing with um, sacrifice and the need for sin to be taken care of by another, we want substitutionary language, we want atonement language, we want 
We want the blood language. We want the temple language, what's called the cultic language. So we need all these terms. And what I find and what I would say to J.D. is uh, to the degree that we are hesitant to use some of the terms that other people like to use, they are going to be uh, they are going to mirror our hesitancy mm-hmm. by being hesitant about the language that we want to use. Mm-hmm. So let's get together and agree that what Jesus has done for us on the cross is so wonderful and so vast that no one term is going to capture it all, and we want to use all the terms and all the atonement theories to describe in different ways, what God has done for us in Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it seems like this is um, a reoccurring type of question in the different theological concepts um, that we talk about in the course of this podcast. Um, the The question in being phrased in just different ways is, how do we talk to people who get who don't get along, or not don't get along with us, but don't maybe agree with us or see things the way that we see them? And it seems like the general response, um, having different implications with each subject, is generally approaching it with humility, that people do have it from a different idea, and they may have different thoughts and ideas that we don't have, um, but can be valuable for us collectively to have a greater understanding about the subject. I don't know, just hearing you talk about that kind of made me I make that observation. It, it's so it's so often the case, Chaz, and you're, you're right, and your experience pastoring has led to this, and that is uh, that, that when we find ourselves uh, fighting over theological categories, sometimes the fight is really legitimate. Oh, sure. there's, there's a debate here that, uh, that uh, is going to create uh, two sides, and there's no solution. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's no compromise here. Sometimes that happens, but more often than not, uh, if we listen to one another and say, you know, you've got a really good point that I could appreciate, and I think I have a point that you could appreciate, I think we'll, we'll be far better off uh, operating that way. Mm-hmm. That's good. So, so, so this question, JD's question was on the positive side of things of how do we, you know, work together in a better way. But you alluded to the other side as well, that there are things that are necessary to be challenged. And um, that's Deacon's next question here is, are there any views or perspectives on the atonement you find particularly troubling and worthy of challenging from the pulpit or in our writing? Um. Well, I, I think the more okay. I, I think the the answer to this one is um, is the caricaturizing of either what someone believes. So sometimes we describe the person who believes in, let's say, hell as an eternal torture chamber. Mm-hmm. When you describe what someone else believes that way, all you're doing is creating a barrier of communication between you and the other person. When you caricaturize another person's viewpoint, uh, you're not being fair. I mean, I think we have to let other people describe their view the way that they like to talk about their view. Mm-hmm. So um, what I find is that the, sometimes we caricaturize other people, but sometimes people caricaturize the view that they're using. So, for instance, let me put it this way. 
Sometimes people on the left describe grace in such a way that you can't quite figure out why Jesus died. It's just that God loves us so much and he's saved us all. And therefore, what are we talking about sin for? When we find ourselves in a, in a difficult spot to bring up the topic of sin, we've, we've got things backwards. We've ruined something. We've distorted something because the Bible deals a lot with sin. And I mean, one of the things I'm grateful for in the Anglican tradition um, is that we have Eucharist every Sunday. Every Sunday, we are reminded that we are sinners in need of forgiveness, that the church is a hospital for people who are sick, not a country club for people who are wealthy and wise yeah. and happy. So um, I think that, and then sometimes on the right, uh, if we, if I can put it this way, in political terms, because this is what's happening, is that people are so emphatic on the wrath of God that that the the cross of Christ, the death of Jesus, the incarnation, the resurrection, are so silenced that we don't hear the message of God's grace and love. If if our understanding of atonement is so narrow that we do not hear that God did this because he loved us, then we're wrong. Mm -hmm. He did not do this because he's mad at us. He did this because he is, uh, he loves us and he wants to heal us. So for instance, we'll go back to the dental imagery. Mm -hmm. If, if all you hear is a dentist yelling at you, you don't have a good dentist and you don't have any healing in the future. Yeah. Uh, but if if the dentist says you you know you things are really good and uh, there's a little bit of a problem there, but let's not worry about that now. Let's talk about the big picture that it's sunny outside, et cetera. Well, then the dentist isn't going to get things done, mm -hmm. and is not going to get you healed from an infection. So we need we need to see the big picture, and that's why last uh, time we talked about atonement is. It must start with the love of God or we distort what atonement is about. But that love of God is a revealing love of God that says you are infected with sin and we need to take care of this sin problem. So uh, I would say that, uh, that the, the best strategy is not to spend our time critiquing what other people say about atonement mm -hmm. and to spend our time Positive, positively constructing an understanding of the atonement that embraces us in the love of God and heals us from our sin. So that, that to me, is what I would want to focus on. Yeah, that's good. And speaking of that approach of coming at it from the perspective of God's love, two guys who have done some significant work on that lately that we've had a number of questions about their work and um, our, our listeners being curious about your perspective is that of Greg Boyd and Brian Zahns. And Steve Cuss specifically asks, what is your take on Greg Boyd and Brian Zahns' current emphasis on a hermeneutic that measures OT difficult passages through the lens of Jesus? Jesus. It seems that this affects atonement theory significantly. Um, this is an interesting question. Uh, I can't. I can't really speak that much to Brian Zahn's book uh, because I did not read it thoroughly. I did not read every every bit of it. 
Um, and Brian was trying to be a, a, reach a far more popular audience than Greg Boyd was. Um, I don't believe technically that um, that Greg Boyd's book on the warrior God is really touching that much on atonement. It, it gets involved a little bit of entwinement, uh, but I don't think that that's the, the, the big idea, but here's what I would say. The Greg Boyd has offered to the church a decades long piece of thinking and working and studying on a problem that we find in the Old Testament. And I, it has to start with this. I, I think that the biggest problem people have with Greg Boyd is they don't think what he thinks is a problem is actually a problem. Greg Boyd thinks the problem is that there are pictures about God as a warrior in the Old Testament that do not square with the revelation of God in Christ and his grace. And as a result of that, Greg wants to find a way to deal with passages in the Old Testament about God as a warrior that are consistent with or somehow can be measured by or at least squared with the understanding of God's revelation uh, in Christ as the one who absorbs our sin and who, in, in that sense, Greg is a pacifist, and so am I, so I like that side of it, is that this warrior theme is subsumed into the idea that God absorbs our sin, takes upon himself in the form of a servant the violence. Instead of meeting out violence, uh, he absorbs violence and redirects it. So um, I think Steve Cuss's question is, is a good one. Uh, and in some ways, it deals with atonement. But if if I had to connect the two, this is the way I would do it. And, uh, and I, I don't want to be speaking here for Greg Boyd, and even less so for Brian Zond. Um, and that is, is, but so let me try this. And that is, Greg Boyd wants to show that what God has done for us emerges from God's love for us, his grace for us, and his grace is a goodness directed at us, uh, and it will heal us of our sin by absorbing that sin and and re and redirecting it or, or eliminating it, eradicating it. So um, I, I, I would say that they get connected uh, in, the, in the themes of grace and in the themes of what God's overall intent is. Um, but um, I, I believe that Greg Boyd has offered to the church an opportunity to think again about the relationship of what we learn about God in Christ, in grace. Look, no one can dispute the idea that, that, uh, that in Christ God showed his love for us abundantly, forgiving us of our sin and showering us with his goodness and grace. And what, what they want to know is how does that fit with some of these warrior passages in the Old Testament? And Greg, at the beginning of his book, in very long chapters, 
And I'm glad he wrote a one-volume edition, though I didn't read the one-volume edition because I read the two-volume edition. Um, Greg, at the beginning, outlines different ways that people have approached this, and he, and he doesn't think that the other approaches are adequate. Here's a very standard one that I think many people are quite satisfied with, and that is this, that if it is right that God in Christ punished sin in the sense that he acknowledged the evil and he looked it into the face, in the eyes, and in his wrath punished that sin, and Christ absorbed the, the punishment of sin, and let's just say the punishment of sin is death. That's what I think it is. I don't think the punishment of sin is wrath. The punishment of sin is, the, is death. That's what Genesis 3 says. And Paul is a hamartiologist, that is someone who studies the theology of sin, uh, and a thanatologist, and that is someone who studies the theology of death. Uh, that death is dealt with in the cross, and many people think that that theology of God looking sin in the face and dealing with it in wrath and punishment um, is mirrored or seen in the warrior God passages of the Old Testament, and then they would connect that to the themes of God punishing sin and evil and eradicating evil in the book of Revelation with uh, the same sort of warrior God theme. That's where I, I think a lot of Christian theologians think that there can be consistency between a warrior God theme of the Old Testament, a warrior God theme of the book of Revelation, and even in Jesus's predictions of the destruction of Jerusalem, and the goodness of God for the sake of forgiveness, so that God shows his grace in part by punishing sin. Others are not so uh, are not so convinced that there is tension between this idea of God's grace and God's punishment, and that's where I think I'm I'm grateful for Greg Boyd uh, drawing our attention to this. Uh, there are going to be people who think he goes too far in one direction, and theologians will dispute this and debate this for years. Greg always seems to be able to draw out lots of disputes and debates about what he has to say. And I think that this is a healthy and important discussion in the church. So I'm thankful that Steve Cuss has asked that question, although I'm not entirely convinced that atonement is uh, directly on the line uh, in Greg Boyd's discussion. Sure. That's a, that's a great explanation. And um, all the time we have left for today's questions. So thank you all who threw out those questions today, um, provided some great conversation for us all. Um, I'm going to go ahead and encourage you, if you haven't had a chance to subscribe, to do that and leave you on a, a bit of a cliffhanger here. This is going to be the next question that we start our episode with next week, next Thursday, uh, is when it'll drop. And it is uh, Josh Beatty's question. And he said, I read a book in seminary by Roy Harrisville called Fracture. I remember his premise was atonement is beyond the scope of language and all atonement theories fall short. 
Do you agree? And does this open up the door to future metaphors describing the atonement? So we will, um, if that question interests you, um, we'll have that one with many others in our next episode. But thanks so much for joining us today. And we look forward to be with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. 